a thing that you know has wants and needs in the world, and it'll not tell you any of them. Right, and the only thing you can do is is cry and poop, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Skippy Infanti Show's Reading Rangers! Into the sky and into the sea, this child is among this world, and it will swallow it whole. It's a very hungry kid. It would seem so, yeah. yeah. It's a whole thing. It is a whole thing. I mean, the, the darn kid that knocked over a Walmart just to take its whole produce section. Like, good God. Oh God. A hungry kid is a healthy kid. Right. There. Oh, good one, Trish. I'm Sean. I'm Brandon. I'm Trish. And on today's show, we will discuss Zinni Rockland's Flowers for the Sea from Tor.com, published in 2021. But before we talk about this book, uh, we'd like to remind all of you folks listening that we still want to hear from you. So please share our comments about this and past episodes at skiffyandfanty.com slash listener suggestions. We're still hoping to put together a listener mailbag episode with your thoughts, questions, topics, suggestions, and more. So please get those thoughts in. Please, we want to hear from you. Great. Okay, so uh, before we get to a summary, I just want to say, because uh, Terry may be listening to this podcast against uh, the advice of counsel. And so I will just note, if you are, are listening to this, you've made a mistake, uh, because you should know better than oh, to Lord. listen to people reviewing your work. But given that I told you I was going to do this, you might be listening. Uh, and I would just say that I really like this book quite a lot. But we are now going to talk about it. And so hello. Yes. So I will attempt to describe this book. Mm -hmm. So the sort of background story of this is these people have been essentially uh, forced out of their home kingdom. This is a somewhat of a, a fantasy world with some like oddly gothic science, early science fictional concepts kind of buried in the background. They've been forced onto an arc after their kingdom is flooded. There's almost no resources. They're beset upon these strange creatures with razor fangs that, that eat them at night. And Araxi is one of the refugees. At the beginning of this story, Araxi is presented to us as as pregnant. She is uh, with the man here at his is in charge of this boat and she's getting closer to birth. She's full of rage and anger uh, about what has happened to her people. And then as the story kind of progresses, uh, she has a very strange birthing process that involves a very strange child uh, that has a fate that we'll probably get into. Uh, that's the basic premise of the story. She's got a kid. That kid's creepy as hell. And that's the, that's, that's the book. That's Flowers <laughs> for the Sea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But anyway, yeah, so that's kind of the idea is they live on this big ship. They have very few resources. Things are falling apart. There's a green room that used to grow fruit and things like that. That room is increasingly becoming less productive. The people that live on this ship have fewer and fewer resources to consume. Uh, life is difficult and tough and hard, and it doesn't seem to have any known end in sight. And that's kind of the basic idea. But she is pregnant in a world where she shouldn't be able to give birth to a child. 
And that is a whole big to do. Right. Other women on the ship have been pregnant and have uh, failed to carry live Correct. children to term uh, repeatedly. And everyone is kind of has their eyes on her. They don't like her. They think she's repulsive or that, that the child she's carrying is repulsive. Um, but yet they're looking at her as a source of hope at the same time, which is an odd juxtaposition of views. It's a very interesting book. I, I will say that my general reaction about this book is that uh, you need to write more. <laughs> Agreed. I mean, yeah. Uh, this is this is a thing where I just felt like there was so much more story and 100 pages just ain't quite enough. And so I actually wanted more of this world a little bit. I, I found the kind of opening chapters kind of... I, eventually I got what the world was kind of doing, but at the opening chapters it kind of took me a minute to really figure out this world and what kind of world we're existing in. But once I got there, I was like, wow, that's really neat stuff. I There's not enough pages. I want more pages. Where Where is more of this this world? Like these razor fang creatures are remarkable. There's hints that there may be... Well, they don't want to be referred to as mermen or merpeople, but there may be a somewhat of a mystical merpeople that live in this, this world that... M- maybe are granting her access to the sea in a way that everyone else doesn't. Um, There's hints at magic and uh, almost like scientific ideas that are sort of buried throughout the book. There's this massive ship, this ark that they're living on, which has multiple levels that they can refer to different levels based on what's even on them. It's a huge ship. Where where did that come from? Who Mm -hmm. built that? Yeah, there was in particular, uh, uh, like, in the early chapters, Iraxi spends a lot of time laying this kind of foundation for um, the fact that uh, her people, before, like, essentially being destroyed by another civilization, um, had some level of mystical communion with other creatures um that I thought was really dope and really interesting, obviously because it feeds into the questions about Araxi's fair affairs about her birth. Um but like I was also like, well what is the thing? Does this mean that you are also do you do you have a magic do you have magic that you can do right now? Do we get to see what those things are like? Do you get to literally kill all of these people that are making you angry at this moment? Because they probably kinda deserve it. And I wanted to see more of that in particular. Like, it was intriguing to establish all of these, like, layers of, like, dark, unfathomable magic in this space. Uh, that Araxi knew that she had some kind of, um, legacy connection to. Um, in a world where everybody else doesn't know anything about her and naturally distrusts her. Um, because I wanted to see how that would juxtapose as well. And while I'm not dissatisfied that that comes more uh, as uh, the child is born, I would have loved for Araxi to have, like, a cool badass witch moment, Um, even though she has a lot of badass moments nearing the end of the book already. Well, she does have a kind of badass witch moment, literally at the very end. (laughs) And I, I mean, I guess this comes down to I want more words, but I was like, I want to see the thing, please, like, 
Let me see the thing. Oh, so many cool, so many cool establishments are taking place in the world of this book, and I just, I would love to see, even if it's not necessarily a larger version of this book, I would like to see more of this world in like another novella or like a future short story or something like that, because those those i those ideas are actually really neat. I was struck by how immersive this book was. Um, I think part of the reason that you don't get a lot of the overview is because she, uh, Iraxi is so focused on the moment for a lot of it. There's a lot of talk about sensory things, the, the smells, a lot about the smells, um, the, the feel of the wood planking under her feet, uh, the resonance of the sounds, um, uh, it, and it, it really felt grounded to me, although that may not be quite the right word since they're afloat on a ship, but, you know, <laughs> it really felt, uh, uh, you know, in the moment and, uh, a strong sense of, of place and, uh, you know, you could feel her physical aches throughout and, uh, uh I mean, uh, leading, especially, you know, during the horrific childbirth, but, uh, you know, leading up to that, the, the strain of the pregnancy, the, um, just trying to deal with things and, you know, the constant battle with her rage and frustration and trying to repress that and, uh, uh, being able to move through the moment and trying to keep her temper or use it as needed to get whatever she needed to survive the next five minutes. Um, so, uh, I, I think, I think, uh, the writer did a fantastic job of conveying those feelings. I do agree that the, the internal, cause it's all told from Maraxi's perspective. And so we get a lot of her internal feelings about what's happening, that rage boiling over. I mean, she describes it that way a number of times, right? That, like barely containing the anger and rage, you know, even recognizing when she's pushing other people away who are actually being kind to her and actually stopping herself from accepting the kindness in some points. Of course, some of those people turn out to not be such good people uh, later on. Uh, and some of them are imperfect people, but are not necessarily against her in the end. Mm hmm. And I, I did really appreciate the amount of depth that goes into that because one of the interesting things that happens for, for me when I was reading the book were there are moments when she's describing what's happening to her body, especially during the pregnancy scenes. And she describes at one point in very literal terms, like really gruesome forms of, of like birth, like the baby, like tearing its way out of her body and all of this. And while that's not literally what happens in the story, uh, what happens is... Well, calling it a normal birth is maybe, I don't know what that qualifies as, given that this child is apparently legion. But um, it's an interesting way of describing how somebody, rather than just saying like, oh, it hurts really bad. <laughs> you know, like, no, she's describing the sheer volume of the pain rocking up her body as mm -hmm. she's going through this very gruesome, painful process. Uh, which is, in this case, giving birth, but giving birth in fairly terrible circumstances uh, involving, you know, like they don't exactly have great ways to keep themselves clean. They don't have a lot of food. It's sweaty and gross. All that's kind of there. Um, th I, I really appreciate that that hyperbole that we get from the character's internal monologue of describing that stuff. 
um, because it lends a lot of weight to kind of what happens later, especially when we start thinking about her rage, you know, and it is it, there is rage there, but it, we don't really fully comprehend how much it is until like the very end when we have her retrieve some of her memories and then also have this very aggressive, I suppose is the word, a cataclysmic reaction to other people, uh, to the ship. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting choice stylistically. So that's kind of what I would say. So I definitely want to speak to style. Yeah, go on, Brandon. Yeah. Tell us all about style. Oh Lord. Got it. Um, got it in spades. (laughs) So one of the things that I adore about this book first and foremost is It is an incredibly poetically written book. And that is already a very kind of simple statement to qualify. Um, But, like, I'm not only speaking about how intensely evocative the language is, because from Iraxi's perspective, uh, he is essentially feeling so much all at once all the time. Um, And the level of as you mentioned, hyperbole, but also, like, a, a level of, um, I want to I wanna say invocation, really, that she's attempting to make you not just experience the volume of this feeling, but the depth of it in a way that I think is particularly interesting, that her sensory uh, metaphors are always not just about how big something is, but about whether it is sweet or whether it is uh, bitter or what those things might uh, mean or imply about that feeling. But one of the things that also struck me is um, the patterns of uh, emotion and experience that Iraxi has. That there were, there are times, there are several times in the story where she will describe a thing that uh, happened in the past um, and then describe what it was like to lose that thing by simply saying, and then it stopped. And that happens several times with, throughout the book. There are several times throughout the book where the way that she describes taking an action um, at the end of a chapter, at the end of a beat, uh, is this abrupt declaration that in the face of all of this frustration and anger and pain and trauma... Um, essentially she has made a resolute decision that this is the thing that she's going to do. Even when the thing that she's doing is screaming. She's not just screaming because she is in pain. She's screaming because, damn it, I have decided that I am going to scream right now. And that really uh, stuck with me. Because it's already a beautifully written book. But knowing that there are things that I'm supposed to settle on, that there's an individual beat that I'm supposed to... um like, stay in and have feelings about the fact that this is happening in this moment um, was actually really cool to me. Um, like, it helped... It it not only helped me figure out how, how I was supposed to read the book in that sense, um, but it let me know that there were things that I wasn't just supposed to continue reading through, that there was a moment that I was supposed to settle in and figure out what that meant. Um, especially when... Um, later in the book when, um, Araxi is trying to, um, deal with her own breathing, either because her child has now, um, compelled her to breathe or because she's simply trying to regain her breath. I was like, are you also telling me that I'm supposed to be breathing right now? Because I'm breathing right (laughs) now. And that was really cool to me. Yeah, just another small example, um, when... 
when someone is momentarily kind or at least not awful to her, you know, and she starts to feel emotions, you know, she doesn't say my eyes welled up with tears or something. She says my eyes, the back of my eyes started stinging. So even to acknowledge the possibility of feeling emotions causes pain to her. Um, she's been so traumatized uh, and she's, you know, for quite a while fighting to not feel anything because if she does, then the rage will overwhelm her. Uh, the rage and sadness and trauma of everything that she's been through. Um, and I thought that was a, a powerful way to do it, you know, just the implication of those simple words, you know, the back of my eyes were, were stinging, you know, and then she usually rebuffs whatever whatever simple kindness or consideration is being offered and, and you know, gets, gets angry over it in some way, but in a small, controlled way instead of just screaming until we get much closer to the end. All of that's really interesting because the, the you mentioned trauma and... You know, naturally, the the very beginning framing of this story already implies a, a heavy degree of trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Their kingdom has been flooded. They've all been forced onto these this ark. They're floating on the sea. They're in the sea like seventeen hundred days or something. So they've been living under these pretty difficult conditions for a while, and they're just getting worse and worse as things fall apart. But then the second chapter immediately reminds us: Oh no, there's an extra layer of this, which is that she comes from. I suppose we could read it as maybe an ethnic group or some other group within this larger group that has mm. been explicitly targeted with what what we would know in our world as a racial slur. It's it's a fantasy world, so it's a little bit harder to make that a one to one comparison. Uh, but basically, they refer to them by a, by a slur that she refers explicitly in her in her story uh, as a slur that has been used for generations to refer to her people. And there's lots of other things like rumors that Brandon was hinting at that, oh, they commune with, you know, animals and other kinds of things, which seems to imply also a degree of either racism or ethnocentrism and dehumanization by way of suggesting that they're not really like us. They must be different in ways that make them beastly. Uh, and so that all is underneath all of this as well, because the ship she's on is full of some of the very same people. And she and uh, she tells us or actually it tells us a number of occasions, right? Like these people, if they dared, they would say it to my face again. And at some point she even like kind of in her monologue kind of dares them like, go on, go for it. Call me what what I know you want to call me. So she's dealing with this additional uh, sort of dehumanizing drama as well which explains some of her rage. The other parts of her rage also come from some other trauma happening with the death of her family, which we learn more particularly about as the story progresses. And so in a lot of ways, this story is a, it's a story about trauma. It's a story about uh, what somebody does with rage that seems to have no end. Yeah. And in this case, the, the ending of this story doesn't necessarily suggest what you might get in other kinds of stories, which is, oh, well, eventually you let it go or like, you know, you, you kind of set it aside or you find a way to move past it and everything just is fine and you make friends and like you join a basketball club and everything's great. Uh, in this, it's a much more violent. Uh, <laughs> that's that's really understating it. Uh, it, it. It is extremely a violent ending. 
uh, because her her rage man i mean to be fair she's betrayed by multiple people so in the end when she gives this final moment of pure anger and rage at what has been done to her in her life and how she's been treated uh it comes across quite differently than you might see in another story. It, it becomes a story where it seems like I'm not suggesting the story has a moral, but if it did, that perhaps releasing one's rage on the people who have harmed you is justified. I mean, I'm not suggesting that's that's uh, Zinni Rockland's like morality of like, yes, please go uh, murder all the people <laughs> who've been mean to you. Uh, that's not I'm not suggesting that's the author, but that's the way the story progresses as this is a natural consequence. Now, there's also an odd, potentially evolutionary narrative that might be also at work here, which we might talk about later. I think what stands out to me in that sense about the about this book, obviously, Araxi has been through a lot, like has gone through several intense additional layers of trauma in this context that... Um, Many of her fellows on this arc obviously have not. Um, but one of the things that... Well, two of the things, actually, that stand out uh, very clearly as a result of that is uh, Araxi's relationship, not just to her child, but to the experience of childbirth in this circumstance, um, knowing that it is the child of a man who does not actually care about her, um, knowing that... Uh, his affair with another woman potentially threatens her or this child in ways that she has yet to discover at the point when she dis- when she learns that that is that is the case but will unravel further on at that point um but that also most complexly is that her first love is also on the arc and she has a lot of hatred for him as well because he because she sees his refusal to uh, uh, actually accept her love as uh, a, a sort of betrayal in the context of all of the trauma that has already been uh, suffered. Um, and even when we learn more uniquely complex things about uh, that man, about Amit, that doesn't tamper Iraxi's rage at all. In fact, it makes it even stronger because in the face of those revelations... Amit could have still just loved her, and she feels wronged by the fact that he didn't do what she th- what she considers necessary in order for that to be true. And even though, like, in the face of that trauma, that's already a lot, because she's suffered a lot of genuine, like, physical hurt. She's, like, uh, still affected by the loss of her uh, family and her kingdom as a result. Um... There's also something, like, uniquely, I'm not sure if intimate is the word, but I'm going to use the word about that rage, precisely because it's in relationship to those two forces, love and uh, childbirth, that a lot of Iraqi's frustration is, in a lot of ways, not knowing if she is, in fact, fully loved by anyone around her, um... And this, like, lingering fear that, um, even on the more metaphysical sense, compared to the genuine physical fears that she has about this baby not being, um, like, mortal in that sense, is also, I guess, the kind of metaphysical frustration that 
Araxi will never be able to connect to uh, this child in this way because this child is born out of all of these like complex relationships to the world itself that uh, are born from the trauma that she's presently suffering and she's kind of afraid of what that will mean for her when she actually brings it into the world and has to deal with it as a mother. Um, and I found that, like, really evocative in itself. Like, I don't know a lot about bringing a child into the world, but one can Neither, only imagine... <laughs> hard as that is to believe. Yeah. <laughs> but one can imagine that... This is not necessarily an extreme of the experiences that mothers have about their children. Even when we are trying to be perfectly like, reasonable and understanding about the fact that bringing life into the world is beautiful and everybody actually loves children, blah blah blah. Sometimes the experience of having a child is uniquely frightening. Uh, even when... You, even when the act of childbirth is not traumatic, sometimes the act of having a child and knowing that it is yours is um, mentally and emotionally overwhelming for um, a lot of people. And I feel like I got a window into that kind of experience through this story, um, especially because of... Not only how it relates to Araxi's suffering of actual physical trauma, but of that more emotional hurt of simply not knowing if you're in a space where anybody actually values you or values your child the way that you think that it should be valued, um, which I thought was interesting. I think that's really interesting that you raised that because I found the the way that it treats... It seemed like what it was doing in some ways is like exploring not necessarily the literal reality of what happens when you give birth, but the fear, literalizing the fear that one might have. Like, what if I don't have that bond with with my child? Obviously, layering on these other layers of, of trauma that the story does, it's it's completely understandable for this character to maybe not be, be interested in bringing a child into this world. It's a rough, horrible world. And the people around her don't necessarily like her. And how are they going to treat your child? The story kind of hints at this a lot of times. But then there's the other angle of this, which is that, I mean, no offense, but this kid creepy. This kid <laughs> is super creepy. Indeed. It comes out. Well, first off, it, it doesn't move for days, which apparently is really unusual in this world. I will just note there's I read a review that was like the pregnancy is not realistic. And I was like, well, neither are giant flying squid monsters with <laughs> razor teeth. So I don't know what to tell you. I, I will state this opinion aloud only because I, I also saw that and went, I'm pretty sure there is a woman somewhere in the world who thinks that her otherwise perfectly normal uh, pregnancy is not realistic and is often perhaps very afraid of the experience of what other people are probably seeing as perfectly normal because there is an expectation that we that, that she may have or that we may have given her about what it's like to bring a child into the world when after she's left the hospital it's like my child is staring at me and I don't know how I feel about that yeah, maybe that's that's Damien, right? Like it's it's like the son <laughs> of the devil. You never know. Yeah, like my child was crying a, uh for an hour previously, but then I offered to breastfeed the baby and it just stopped making any noise. But also like 
this is a creature that can't communicate with you, right? Like you have this little this little thing yeah. come out. I think that you know has wants and needs in the world, and it'll not tell you any of them. Right, and the only thing you can do is is cry and poop, basically. <laughs> And, like, you can figure out some signals there, but, like, you have no connection to the to the mind of this creature. Whereas in this story, right, Araxi does, right? There's this, like, legion of voices that enters her mind. There's a reason for it in the story, but it adds this extra dynamic of not only is there that fear of, like, I'm bringing this child into the world. Am I prepared to be a mother? Or worse, like, is it does this even make sense? Like, there's a moment early in the story where she basically implies, like, she kind of wishes that it had just been like any other pregnancy on this ship. It had just been a miscarriage and been done because there is there's just a lot of questions that there are no good answers for. But then this baby speaks to her with a legion of voices and also has her sit in like a tub full of cactus goo. That also, I think if I read the story correctly, administers like anti-anxiety meds and sleep meds through its pricking. Yeah, something like that. It was <laughs> it was not laid out. Exp- it it's was a little explicit. hard to it's figure very out implied. sometimes what was happening. Yeah, yeah, more implications mm-hmm. than outright statements. But yeah, but no yeah, clarity, the- just vibes. Yeah, uh, a whole lot of feelings about this. Um, I oh mean, God! Yeah. Some 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 women during during their pregnancy do feel like there's this parasite in them. You know, they have no control of, over what is going on in their bodies, or very little. Um, and and this thing is growing inside them. You know, siphoning their energy. Um, <laughs> it it can be pretty freaky. Um, and uh. Actually, for a while, I guess the cover is a giveaway. Um, with but with the you know woman with the tentacles around her. Um, but just just from the text, I you know you you wouldn't be sure from the beginning of this whether this really is a very unusual pregnancy or if she's just having very bad feelings about it you know is she is she really birthing some kind is she really carrying some kind of uh uh sea creature hybrid thing or is she just having fairly normal concerns about a very uh difficult pregnancy um, or you both know, or both, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. absolutely, or <laughs> both. Um, yeah, and and it becomes uh, clear later that well, yes, she actually is going through something really uh, uh, unique. But um, yeah, there there's a, a lot in there uh, about um, it, how 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 difficult it can can be, and you know, especially for for her with this situation of being basically alone on the ship she has a few people she knows but most of them either hate her or have a very difficult past with her um and uh, the uh midwife i can't remember her name you know she's being professionally kind to her as a part of the treatment but you know uh can tell she really doesn't like her (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. she doesn't like her people she doesn't like where she comes from she's just yeah and so you know even that uh you know 
performance of decency is not sincere, and she can tell. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that up. That that and that phrasing specifically, performance of decency, mm-hmm. because on some level, I feel like this story is either explicitly or like or by implication, or at least we can read into it, dealing with that idea about how people from dominant groups sometimes treat people from less dominant groups, groups that have previously been oppressed, and will treat them in a way where it's like, I am being decent to you. See how decent I am. But you know underneath that is not, that's not what's really going on. It's sort of like, I, I don't know, I can't recall if Terry's originally from the South. I believe so, but I, I'm not 100% sure. Zinni Rockland, sorry. Uh, uh, this is not private information. I just want to know, it is on their on, on Terry's Twitter that this is their alias. So just to be clear, <laughs> like I'm not like <laughs> revealing someone's personal identity uh, that they haven't revealed themselves. Uh but a part of me made, made me think about like uh, that like notion of of like Southern hospitality, that that idea of like, oh, in the South, like we're all so respectable. But that means that you then intentionally don't talk about all of the like blatant, aggressively racist stuff that happens in the South. You just like cover it up with potato, sweet potato pie and just pretend that like, look, everything's fine. And to some degree, that kind of seems to be what this story is, at least hinting at it or, or playing around with a little bit in Ket, who is the doctor, and also even some of the other people who kind of look at her, but she can tell. She has like a sixth sense. She can almost tell that they they really want to say horrible things to her, but they can't because of her relationship with her, who is, who is her lover slash eventual betrayer. And so... That there's just that like unsteadiness of like my position is precarious from the beginning. Of course, it becomes explicitly precarious later when <laughs> they basically say, "Once you're done uh, feeding this kid and we don't need your nipples anymore, uh, we're gonna th- throw you, <laughs> I guess, overboard." Is, is kind of what's suggested. Yeah. I will say that at no point did this story abandon though that idea of the baby as as almost weird parasitic creature because the second it starts. Uh, you know, feeding. It gave me like serious aliens vibes. Mm-hmm. Like, just this thing is like attached to her. Like, she's not quite fully in control. Cause I I read it very much like so. She's drugged right now. She's got this parasitic entity sucking her life force right out. But well, I was afraid that you know there were going to be razor razor teeth oh on my her God. nipple oh, shredding God. her. I mean, it was. I was seriously worried what was going to happen when it started nursing. Yeah. Is that a thing that women worry about too? That like their their newborn babies will have like one evil tooth. I mean, I don't. I I realize that may not be a thing we all can answer because that's probably not like. <laughs> <laughs> it I, is not a fear that I have heard. Expressed. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I would be scared. Like, I, but, I mean, I imagine like if I were pregnant, I'd probably know a shit ton about what's happening to me at that point. So maybe not. But. I mean, I'm I'm sure a lot of people don't know as much as they think they would like to. Well, that I was think... on Twitter. Did you not see that about uh, th- the weird things men have thought about pregnancy and periods? Oh, my God. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean <laughs> men tend to be ignorant about a lot of things in this world. Um, mm-hmm. I was shocked. I know I didn't get a good sex education in school, <laughs> but I was like, wow, oh, yeah. you all believe some some utterly bananas things about women's bodies. Yeah, well, you read some of the really ignorant things that some people believe about rape and pregnancy. Uh, you, oh. Yeah, it's oh, yeah. Just so many. <laughs> yeah. 
that the body knows really? as a way to shut that down as she was yeah <sighs> Jesus yeah yeah that fucking guy jeez um, you know, other other stuff it's, it's yeah. just uh, crazy what some people believe and you know will defend as knowledge even though it's just who knows where they got this weird gossip uh, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, stuff from okay so back to the book <laughs> yeah <laughs> sorry <laughs> no, that's that's not your fault. That was my fault. I took us on a tangent. That's on me. So am I off base in, in kind of reading that idea of the performance of, shall we say, civility? I don't think that you're off base because I actually saw it in a very similar way, but like far more like abusive and perverse as a oh. result, which is also that because Araxi is the only person on the arc who has brought a child to term, she has this kind of very liminal power uh, at present because everybody wants to know that it is possible, at least, that uh, childbirth can con- can continue for them. But they don't care about her or her people, so they're only caring as much as uh, this will continue to be useful. Um, which means that they still need to put up with um, Araxi's capacity to be a mother to this child up until the point where she is no longer valuable. And Araxi knows that and is playing into that as often as possible in order to not only to ensure that uh, this experience doesn't um, end for her, because now she knows at this point, after after her hearing uh, Ket and Hirat uh, plot against her in private, mm-hmm. um, but also because she knows that taking advantage of that civility is still an act of revenge. That if, even when she knows that they are deliberately um, causing her harm, like I think very deeply about the uh, the scene where uh, Ket is administering um, sutias after the pregnancy. Um, and it is obvious that Araxi is in a lot of pain, but she's going out of her way to not let that show. Because if she let these people know that they're obviously hurting her, then they still win. Um, and it means that she has to put on a brave face throughout, which still sucks. But the fact that she is aware of that and uh, and is willing to leverage that personally as an act of revenge on her part, as her saying that these people will not have power over her in that way, is actually really radical to me. Yeah, well, I think it's a pretty natural reaction to put a bold face on it to not let people know that they're hurting you i mean that's that's the thing i got told you know when i was teased pretty badly in junior high you you know you don't don't react and they'll leave you alone eventually (laughs) um (laughs) you know it's uh uh uh, not a unique reaction to her but you know she was definitely good at it um Sure. Oh, what I was thinking before, um, with the, uh, them plotting to get rid of her, you know, the moment when she sees Ket holding the child without, yeah. without Aroxy's permission, you know, I was kind of like, is this r- it right here? Are they gonna try and, you know, throw her off the boat right now? It, it was, and so no wonder Aroxy had such a strong reaction. And then the child also. Yeah. It's interesting you raise the child because the child has this god awful scream, mm-hmm. which 
Makes people's ears bleed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like people's ears bleed. Like that this this child has some lungs, let's just say. You thought you didn't enjoy being in a food establishment with someone else's baby before. <laughs> imagine if that baby could cry and you started bleeding from the ears. I mean, imagine being stuck on a plane with this baby. Mm. Oh, well, I mean, God. you. Uh, there will come a point where you're stuck on the plane, and then there'll come a point where you don't have to think about the plane anymore. I mean, you'll be dead, probably. <laughs> true, true, true. Yeah. By the way, I'm not actually complaining about babies on planes. <laughs> I've been on planes with babies that cried, and sometimes it's annoying, but whatever. Like, it's not that big a deal. Grow up. I've never met a baby that's more annoying than the plane itself. Yeah, mm. I've never done that. Mm-hmm. But let's be very clear. If this baby from, from Flowers <laughs> to the Sea on the plane, you yes. have legit complaints. If yes. this baby screamed, I'm sure glass would break and like the cabin pressure would suddenly change inside. It's like, it's a lot. It's a lot. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting There's that at the beginning of the story, like clearly it's fantasy. It's got fantasy elements. But mm-hmm. some of the elements, it's sort of subdued in a little in a little bit, right? I mean, it's clearly a secondary fantasy world. They're on a big arc ship, so there's those little elements there. But it doesn't come across as, like, being very aggressively fantastic or very aggressively gothic, which is part of this. Uh, at least aesthetically it is, but it isn't like, hey, by the way, there's all this stuff. And then by the end of the story, that stuff sort of cascades, right? There are these amazing moments when she's in the green room. And her very presence seems to make dead fruit trees erupt alive with with fruit. I mean, at one point, she engorges herself on loquats. I'm not sure exactly mm-hmm. what that is. I've never seen that before. If I that's a real food, like I want it. it's kind of like a plum or something. It okay. is a real food, yes. Okay, put it in my mouth immediately. I, w- I want to eat it. Speaking of which, I want to have a lot of feelings. So, like, the green room as an object, as a space, is, a, or I already sure. think is cool. Because, like... The renaissance in media recently of how do we create produce when we have to travel large distances is already a thing that is very much my jam. So I like the idea of how figuring out how we grow trees in the um, middle of the ocean. Um, but not only do I enjoy that the fruits are real, Pomeracs are in the book. They are. Yeah. They are. I have a lot of feelings about. So, uh, Zinni Rocklin is Trini. Yes. So I have a lot of feelings. Obviously, first and foremost, that um, this is a Trini book, and I feel even when it is not very obviously about Trinidad, there are things about that experience that, like, if I handed flowers for the sea to a, a Afro Trinidadian woman and asked her what she felt about this book. I'm sure a lot of those experiences are just like obvious to them in the exact same way. But like me personally, I'm always just really jazzed to see, hey, there's this little part of Trinidad and Tobago in this book. And it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal that it's not a big deal. So just knowing, hey, there's a Pomerac tree in this book. It did a thing personally to me as a trainee reading it, because that's the first tree that dies when she describes those trees. I'm like, oh no, oh no, not this one. Take the loquats. (laughs) I don't care about that. I've never had one of these. Um, So that was, that, that, that hit me. And that's all I'm saying. So I'm curious what people made about the ending of this, because it's, it's violent. And if you've listened this far along, 
Uh, you fine with spoilers, I think, at this point. But she destroys the whole ship. Yeah. Right? She has this communion with her legion demonic daughter slash I gothic water princess god thing and grows gills and then basically goes up to a razor fang and like hangs out on its plumage on top of its head and then has the entire ship destroyed. And that's kind of where it ends is is that sort of idea. So this there's a hint that there's going to be some new new something. Some new new world is emerging as it were. Um perhaps quite literally from the sea or perhaps emerging into the sea. What did people make of this ending? What did you think about how this ends? I thought good for her. <laughs> <laughs> so like rage is a difficult thing to quantify in um fiction because everybody feels angry in different ways for different things and responds to it differently. And it's it's obviously very different f- like Several different people read this book and obviously respond very differently to whether this rage is justified. I personally believe that it was. Like, the thing that stuck with me the most is that the last words that Araxes says before they destroy the ship is, uh, she turns to Amit and says, I loved you. Past tense. Yeah, one, the past tense. Two, that mm-hmm. that is ultimately the trigger for the violence to come. That... Even if all of this trauma were still to exist, at the very least, you could have not been a coward when I needed you to not be a coward and just love me the way I loved you. I think he was right. Screw all of those people. Well, most of those people just deserve to die because they're terrible people anyway. But the 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 wealth of the rage that comes from Araxi in that moment to say, I don't want I do not want to share space with anyone that obviously does not care for me in this moment. Especially after having been told by her uh, child, by whatever entity this child is, uh, that her rage has value. Um, For her to decide that this is the value of that rage, after having previously acknowledged that she doesn't know what it's going to do, or what, what her rage is supposed to be useful for. And her deciding, well... It is useful, so I am going to def- I'm going to define its use, and its use right now is screw all of these people for not giving a damn about me. I I dig that a lot. I just wish I could have seen them die. That's the part that bothers me. I just wanted to witness the carnage on this goddamn ship. They get eaten. It's like I'm that, sure, that right? Movie Deep Rising. You ever seen Deep Rising where the giant squid octopus monster? I eats have them not. Alive? I will add that oh. to the list of things to see. But like <laughs> the joy for me is, of course they, of course they got uh, torn apart, right? But after reading this already beautifully written novel, I would like to see all of the powerful, uh-huh. evocative ways that Zinni Rockland would like to show me people getting their bodies torn apart by razor, uh, razor fangs, razor fangs, razor fangs, right? Yeah, razor yeah, fangs, or what they called. Yes, I just wanted to see it because they deserve that. I wanted to witness it. Please, please, you could have just given me the scene of all of these people having their limbs torn off of their bodies. But no, I guess I have to wait. Imagine it in my brain, even. Like, you trust my brain, I trusted yours. Then you could have just given me the goddamn scene. I just wanted to see them be torn apart. Please, please. 
I'm not quite sure whether the people deserved it, you know, it was perhaps the the rage was certainly welcomed by the sea creatures, and I do wonder if perhaps they might have exaggerated it in her or encouraged it in her. You know, maybe she wouldn't have been as rageful um, without their fostering it. I'm not sure. But, um, so I won't judge whether she should or shouldn't have done that. Uh, I will say it reminded me of, um, Victor Laval's The Ballad of Black Tom and several science fiction stories I've read where human beings encouraged and welcomed alien invaders and helped them invade and destroy. Um... Uh, I, I, I have seen that theme a lot more in the last 10 or so years, um, maybe 15 years or so, where, uh, you know, it's perfectly understandable that some people would want to tear it all down and destroy it all, uh, you know, have their current world destroyed and at least turned topsy-turvy, um, uh, which is a gentle euphemism for kill everyone, <laughs> you know. So uh, I'm just interested that that is um, a thing I'm seeing, it seems like, more and more in recent years. So I actually really dig that you mentioned uh, those works in particular, because part of the reason why I like Flowers for the Sea, part of the reason why I enjoy that that's the way that it ends is in part because there is something kind of uniquely interesting about the idea that when we are given that kind of power, this is the thing that we will do with it. Not all the time, but um I feel like the the I feel like the thing that is obviously cool to me personally is not the idea that the end result of giving us this kind of power is obviously rage, even though I do think that those characters deserve it, because a lot of us deserve it in the real world. Um, but that we are given that power in the first place, and then given the freedom to decide what we want to do with it. Um, and that's what I respect in Araxi's decision most of all, even though I still want to see all of these people be decimated. Um, because even when Araxi is told that her rage is a tool that will be used by these uh, uh, other creatures and these other forces in this way. And even even when she is told that it has a value that they are not going to qualify for her yet, she still ultimately decides that she's going to use it. And no one stops her. Even if it is fair to assume, I think it's almost um, implied by the, by the story, that... Um, the entity that is her child really wants her to lean into uh, this rage in this moment. Um, and that that might potentially be a bad idea for her in the long term. But it doesn't stop her, which means that ultimately she has finally been given power in this book. Which is another thing, interestingly, that I wanted to touch on about this book as well. Uh, that Araxi spends a lot of time reacting, obviously to the circumstances that she's in, but she's always deliberately acting. Like, she's not merely responding to circumstances that people have given her. She's making the conscious decision that this is the reaction that I'm going to take because this is the result that I want from my reaction. Um, 
and in a literary landscape where we often speak down to the idea of reaction being a valuable um, narrative decision, I feel like that's what makes Iraxi stand out to me as a character. The fact that even when on a narrative level, on paper, she's just reacting to her circumstances, every decision Iraxi makes is a purposely deliberate one with a deliberate goal. And even if she doesn't immediately accomplish the goal, the goal is in her mind when she makes those decisions. And that kind of bears out in the book as a result, because the end result of all of those decisions is now she has the ability to decimate all of these people, and she takes it. And I dig that a lot. I didn't know you were so violent, Brandon. After all these years, we thought you were just this gentle, gentle, kind person. And it turns out... (laughs) What I'm sure you are vaguely aware about is that most, if not all, marginalized people that you will ever meet in this world have within them a small black heart full of rage. And the only reason why you love them is because you haven't incurred any of it yet. Because you're a good one. Well, I don't plan to. I feel like I'd have to work... I'd have to, like, do some real damage to my psyche to to get you to bring your rage upon me, Brandon. Yeah. It, 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 you, I, it would take a lot of effort. Yeah, you'd have to <laughs> you'd have to cross a lot of lines I don't think you're physically capable of to, to make me angry. <laughs> so in, in all of that, one of the things that, that immediately made me think of, Trisha's mentioning these books, and then Brandon, you were kind of talking about, you know, vengeance and rage and, and the way that this book approaches it, it made me immediately think of Nella Hopkinson's Midnight Robber mm-hmm. because of it's a different journey for the main character, but there are some vague similarities in terms of the source of some of that rage. Uh, it, it, there's some all, some diff, some significant differences because they are very different stories, but it made me think very much at the end when the main character, Tan Tan, who has taken on the role of the Midnight Robber, gender-swapping the Midnight Robber, uh, is beset upon by her her stepmother in a in a tank, like a cobbled-together tank, because they because of uh, she m- killed her own father because her own father did pretty horrible things to her, and she protected herself, killed him, and she, this woman wants her dead. And the end of the movie kind of deals with the f- or the book well it should still be a movie it should be a movie um the mm-hmm. end of the book really kind of explores like the alternate version of where that rage goes uh where it can sometimes blind us to or or it can sometimes uh make us unaware of the harm we're, we're sometimes doing this story is not that because i think it's fairly clear that by the end the people that are being destroyed mostly have done irreparable harm to uh, Iraxi, or at least to Iraxi's people, and will do it again. And so, while maybe I feel bad for like her ex lover, who is just seems like an idiot, uh, <laughs> it, it does come from a different source. But it made me think of that. My only complaint with this book is I just, I it's kind of similar to what Brand Brandon you were saying. It just I just think there needs more for the ending. I don't necessarily need to see like viscera, but there is more of that in the book. So it does raise the question why it's not there at the end too. But I would like to see a little bit more build up to that particular ending. I think it's just a little too short. I Mm -hmm. I feel like there's more story here that wasn't written or, or 
wasn't asked for that should have been asked for. And I just write more. That's it. That's it. Just like, give me more of this world. Like, come on. Yeah. I will differ from you too. I rather liked the abrupt ending. I, it feels like it was so horrific that even, even, uh, Zen Rockland, Zenny Rockland could not go there. Um, oh. <laughs> you know, it, it was just, just mass destruction all over. And you can just imagine that. Like, I do want to be clear, though. I'm not saying that the ending is bad or uh, Correct, disappointing yeah. by any means. I'm just stating that I'm very selfish. Um, <laughs> I do think it's curious, like, Trish, that you're you're raising the ending kind of a, a little bit abrupt. Uh, but it is curious that the ending is the least visceral part of the story. But the descriptions of pregnancy and being treated for, for being pregnant, being checked for being pregnant are way more visceral. Uh, there are mm-hmm. multiple scenes when Ket is checking Iraxi's body, and I'm going to leave that there, uh, that are described in very <laughs> uncomfortable terminology. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that's so curious because the moment when you'd expect that, the normal story expectation would be what Brandon is kind of calling for, which is the people being ripped up and their arms flailing everywhere. And that's the, oddly enough, the least visceral part of the entire story in terms of gore. Interestingly enough, yeah. I actually think the juxtaposition between those two moments are very interesting for two seemingly contradictory reasons. Oh, okay. One being that obviously Iraxi wants us to care about... Uh, how overwhelmingly hostile it feels for her to be violated in this way on a regular basis um, in this space. Whereas when these people die, they don't matter, at least to Mm. her. Um, But alternatively, um, I think that uh, Zinni Rocklin wants us to not leave any anything to the imagination about Eraxi's uh, violations in this space, whereas the story trusts us to do all kinds of nasty things to these people when they <laughs> die, because at this point we think that uh, Eraxi has earned this. Um, which I think works. Again, I think that that is very, very powerful. My thing is just that I'm very selfish. Zin, I trust you. I want to hear you describe all of these people die the way that you've described everything else, please. That's the new story. Well, we got it. You think we, we did it? Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, you feeling good, Trish? Yeah, I'd just say I think both of you two read the text. I listened to the ebook, oh. which I got from my wonderful library, and uh, I definitely recommend it. It did, you know, mm-hmm. really carried the weight of it, I thought. Oh, that's good to hear, because, gosh, this would be a hard one to narrate. <laughs> I'm very curious about the audiobook all of a sudden, because I'm very curious who read it. So who was it read by, Trish? Amina Korama. Hmm. Uh-huh. K-O-R-O-M-A. Interesting. Nice. Well, okay, we did it. That's it, folks. Yeah. So if you'd like to let us know what you thought about this episode, head over to skiffingfanny.com slash listener suggestions. You could also suggest a book you might want us or novella, as in the case of this episode, that you'd like us to cover. Uh, because, sure, why not? There's lots of stuff to read. Uh, follow us at skiffyandfanty on Twitter and Instagram. And do get the newsletter run by Stephen Geigen Miller at skiffingfanny.com slash newsletter. And if you enjoyed this episode or our past episodes or only one of our episodes or six of them, 
and you feel like supporting us, patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty is the number one way. And the second way would be leaving uh, good quality five-star reviews on the various pod places like iTunes and other such individual spots. You can find me at Sean Duke on Twitter, SeanDuke.net, Alphabet Streams on Twitch, and Patreon.com slash TheJoyFactory. You can find me at The Rising Tides on Twitter, Patreon.com slash The Rising Tides, and on SpeculateSF.com, where I currently GM Fractal Spire, a Grill by Moonlight actual play. And you can find me, Trishy Matson, most easily on Twitter, at P.E. Matson. Well, awesome. Uh, so I will let everybody know that uh, I have also grown gills recently, mm, but excellent. they only allow me to breathe in a vat of Dr. Pepper. <laughs> you know what? There are worse sodas to have to breathe through. Well, I can't breathe through any of the others. It's only Dr. Pepper. Yeah, yeah. Water Dr. In there, Pepper, I, I can do. Dr. Pepper I can deal with. Okay. Um, that, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> it's just carbonated prune juice. It's no big deal. Yeah. yeah I, it's got yeah. a prune juicy-like <laughs> flavor. Come on, you know I'm right. Yeah, it's something... Somewhere in me. that somewhere in that range, yes. I mean, I'm old enough now that I can say prune juice is good. Whatever. Ah, fair enough. Or is that after 40? I would say quite a bit after. Oh. But I mean, you do you. Oh, shoot. Well, look, I already feel like I'm 5,000 years old, so I like prune juice, and I don't care who, who, what anybody thinks. You you don't have to justify your desire to to live an old man's life to me. Excellent. <laughs> and on that note, awkward ending and scene. If you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash skiffyandfanty or skiffyandfanty.com, our website, where you can get access to all of our fancy things. Our music comes from Holy Mole. You can support him and his work at patreon.com slash holy mole. Thank you for listening. <laughs>